Okay, so we are continuing today in our series through the Gospel of John. Here at Austin Chapel, we love to just go through God's Word verse by verse, really dive in. Today we're, um, I'm getting a lot of like, uh, can we turn my voice down just a little bit? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Today we're going through all of chapter 7. It's a long chapter. But you know what? I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know what? You guys are a smart group, right? You guys have big brains. We can handle a whole chapter, right? Yeah. All right. Or we could just tell amusing stories or whatever. But, you know, I didn't didn't come to this church to, uh, I didn't plant this church to just tell amusing stories, funny stories. We want to know God's word. Amen. We want to know God's word. We want to, we want to really invest and in, in, in pour into his word, which when we focus in, we, we study it. God really pours into us. He teaches us. He transforms us because that is the power of God's word. Amen. Like there's no power in, in a funny story. There's, there's no power in amusing, uh, you know, uh, speaking antics or whatever. The word is where the power is. And so we love to just focus in on the word and kind of bounce board off of that. Um, and then into our week as well, applying it to our lives. So we're going to be reading the whole chapter seven. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. We're also going to read a whole another chapter, 2 Corinthians 5. So those are going to be the two places that we're going to be today. We're going to cover two chapters because I believe you guys are smart and capable. Amen? All right. Sometimes I know it's like, oh, a whole chapter, we freak out, but that's not going to be today. Okay. So let's pray and we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit right now. Lord, we, we need your Holy Spirit to understand your word. It says that it's foolishness to those who don't have the Holy Spirit, Lord. Um, I don't want this to be foolish to anyone here. I don't want them to look at it and not understand it, not get the significance of the passages that we're reading today. So Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, move in us so that we can understand your word fully. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak a message that is so much deeper, so much louder than anything I can say to each person's heart, Lord. You have that ability, Lord. You are the one who transforms. You are the one who changes us. You are the one who works in us. I I can't do any of that, Lord. All I can do do is deliver a word, but you have to do the work. So Holy Spirit, anoint me uh, to preach in a way that is is humble, that is glorifying to you, and uh, a way that is honest to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through John, and we've been kind of seeing this um, Jesus guy, and Jesus has started his ministry kind of low key for the most part. He's been he's been bringing in some disciples. We saw in early John. He's been doing some miracles, some crazy things, healing people. He's been uh, changing water into wine. He's been saying some pretty crazy stuff like I'm the bread of life. Uh, you know, I'm God. I'm the water. You know, all of these things that uh, that he gives us this living water. All of these things that he's been saying. Um, but he hasn't really had the full-fledged public ministry that he's going to um, after this point in chapter 7. We're going to see that Jesus' ministry becomes more and more public. He becomes more and more well-known. And so we come to chapter 7, and Jesus is going to go up to this festival. It's a... Uh, called the Festival of, of Tabernacles. Uh, in some Bibles, it'll say the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Shelters. Um, and in Hebrew, it's called uh, Sukkot, which is basically the same meaning. And so we see that this is a really important festival. It's the last of the seven feasts that God commanded his people to um, to 
celebrate. And it is one of the three pilgrimage festivals where every native born Jewish man had to go to Jerusalem and present themselves before God. So it's one of the three most important festivals for the Jewish people, for the Jewish tradition, and it is the last of them. So we see that Jesus um, is going to go up to this in chapter 7. What's really interesting about this um, festival is that it's the festival of tabernacle. Everybody say tabernacle, right? It's a fun word to say. It's also a word that you would never say in any other context but the Bible, right? Like nobody else is like, oh, my tabernacle. I'm going to go and sleep in my tabernacle. I'm going to go hang out in my tabernacle. We don't say that. But this is... um, The festival of tabernacle, tabernacle literally means a dwelling place. And when God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, when they were crossing through that desert over that 40 years, they were given this tabernacle, which was basically a tent version of a temple. It was a portable temple where the people would worship. But more importantly, it was where God's presence actively dwelt. Right? We know that God is omnipresent, that he is at all places uh, at all times, but his presence is active and more tangible in certain places and certain times. We see that in the Old Testament. And so at the tabernacle, God's presence was even sometimes visible in the form of a cloud or even a cloud of fire. Um, God's presence was moving and active in this, in this tabernacle. And so really the feast of tabernacles was to celebrate a few things. The first, that God had set them free from Israel, or sorry, from Egypt. The Israelites were set free from Egypt. And it was to remember that God's presence was with them. And so it was celebrating that they were freed and God was with them. He dwelt with them in the tabernacle, right? And what's pretty cool is it was an eight day feast Uh, They'd have an eight-day celebration, and during that time, they would uh, go to the Jerusalem and and that surrounding area, and everybody would stay in, like, their own homemade tent, basically, their own tabernacle. Uh, During those eight days, they would sleep in this tent made of, generally, uh, of tree branches. And it sounds a lot like Coachella, right? Like, like any festival today, everybody goes out and sleeps in tents and like celebrates, right? So that's what they were doing. They were, they were all sleeping in tents and having this festival. And they would stay in the tents, one, because it's tabernacle. These are tabernacles and it's a tent holiday. So you got to stay in a tent, but also because it reminded them of what they went through coming out of Egypt. Also, it, it reminded them that um, even the things that seem permanent are still only temporary here on this earth. And it's really important, and we're going to talk a lot about that at the end. The things that we think are permanent oftentimes are actually not. And we need to focus in on what's truly eternal and going to last forever. So they celebrate this holiday. It was a big deal. Um, And the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, represented God dwelling with them. But more than that, it represented the coming of the Messiah. They knew that. And the Jews were looking for maybe, hey, the Messiah is going to show up during the Feast of Tabernacles because it's the, you know, the presence of God, the dwelling place. And so what's really interesting, okay, I'm going to need you guys to follow me a little bit here. But uh, 
we celebrate Jesus' birth um, on December 25th, but that was instituted in the fourth century by the Catholic Church. We know um, that it couldn't have actually been during that season that Jesus was born for, for a number of reasons. Um, but most believe that Jesus, most scholars believe that Jesus was probably born more in that fall season, sometimes it may be in September, late September, early October. Now, that's also the season in which uh, the Feast of Tabernacles will fall. So their calendar, the Jewish calendar, is a little bit different. So it would fall for us somewhere between late September and early October, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, uh, many scholars actually believe that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, um, which is you know, beautiful because the Feast of Tabernacles represents God dwelling with man. And in fact, in John's Gospel, in John 1.14, it said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, it's interesting, John chose to use the word um, tabernacle, which we translated dwell with us, right? It's the word tabernacle, and it's an interesting choice because um, it, does, it doesn't really quite make sense. He's intentionally putting it there, right? L linguistically, it wouldn't have made sense, but he's making a statement saying, and Jesus tabernacled with us, like he came and tabernacled. And so many scholars believe that John is um, telling us that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles because that represented his coming um, as um, God dwelling with us, which is pretty cool. So, also, many scholars believe that the Festival of Tabernacles is a foreshadowing of Jesus coming again. Um, and there are even some who believe that it's, it's possible that Jesus will return again during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, uh, I don't know that for sure. I don't, none of them do, but it's an interesting thought. And I would just say this, late September, early October, have an extra watchful eye, okay? <laughs> uh, Jesus is going to return, amen? And we're looking forward to that day. So let's jump into John chapter 7. We're going to look at some interesting dialogue that happens around and during this feast. And then we're going to jump over to 2 Corinthians 5 after that and really look at um, our true dwelling place as, as Christians. John 7, uh, we're going to just start with verse 1 and work our way through verse by verse. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. How sad is that? Not even his brothers believed in him. And they're, they're kind of egging Jesus on here. That is what brothers do, though, isn't it? Like me and my brother, we definitely kind of you know, egg each other on, or we, we kind of give each other a hard time. Um, but here, they're, they're crossing a certain line where they know that Jesus is having this ministry. Jesus has a lot of disciples. He has a lot of followers. He's performing a lot of miracles. 
And yet they don't believe that he's the Messiah. They definitely don't believe that he is God incarnate. And they're questioning him in a way. And they're almost kind of sarcastically pushing them on. They're like, hey, like if you're this Messiah, God incarnate, like go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and make yourself known. That's a good place to get famous since that's what you're all about, Jesus. Go get famous. Go do more miracles in front of more people. Come on, bro. They're giving him this attitude, right? They're, they're, they're um, kind of pushing him because they don't really believe. And Jesus is going to respond to this um, in an interesting way. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You see that Jesus throughout the Gospels talks a lot about that. My time has not yet come. Or it'll say like they were trying to kill Jesus. We'll see that later in this, this chapter and in many other places in the Gospels as well, where they're like trying to kill Jesus, but they couldn't. He got away because his hour had not yet come. And we see that Jesus is very aware of this. And the writers of the Gospel were very aware of this, that everything that Jesus did was on a specific time table. Like there was a specific plan and everything Jesus did was in God's perfect timing. Amen. And so as I was looking at that, though, um, Timing is one of the things that I think we struggle with as Christians, don't we? We really struggle with God's timing of things. And I think we can learn from Jesus here that we can trust God's timing. Some of us are procrastinators, right? So everything should be later, <laughs> right? And some of you are like, no, I'm really impatient and I want everything now. Like everything needs to just happen. I need to get it all done. Let's get everything in the right place. I need to make it happen now, 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 now. And others are like, well, I would like to just procrastinate everything. And then most of us maybe are somewhere in the middle where like some things we're super impatient and other things we just want to procrastinate. We just want to put off as, as long as possible, right? We need to learn to trust God's timing. We really do. His timing is perfect. Now, Jesus was, was connected as the Son of God to the uh, Father in this timetable, and he had this awareness that we unfortunately don't have because we're not God. Uh, but we can trust his timing. We can trust God's timing. Let me just encourage you with that. Um, if you're waiting for something, you're wondering why it's not happening yet, just trust God's timing. Be patient. Trust Him. If you've got an idea, don't always jump too soon. Seek His timing. Seek His will. Ask Him, hey, Lord, what is your timing on this? I want to do it now. But if you want me to wait a little longer, I will. Amen? Okay. Where were we? <laughs> Okay, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus is saying, hey, like you can go, like you go do your thing. Nobody's going to be trying to kill you uh, because the world, you're just a normal person. Uh, I testify that the world's works are evil and now they hate me because of it. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for the my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So Jesus tells his brothers, no, you guys go on up. I'm not going up. And then Jesus receives something from the father that encourages him to go up. And he goes up in his timing. And the Greek um, 
the way the Greek reads, it's less literal. When Jesus is saying, I'm not going up, it implies that he's saying, I'm not going up the way that you are saying I should go up. Because remember, they're saying, hey, you need to go up and be famous and make yourself known and do all your cool miracles. If you really think you're the son of God, if you really think you're the Messiah, go up. Jesus instead is going to go up in more private, um, a, a more secretive way. And so that's the way he goes. He goes up. John 7:14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus goes up to this festival and it seems like people were asking about him. Even the Jewish leaders were wondering if he was going to show up. They probably figured Jesus is a native born Jewish male, so he has to come up. So they were probably looking um, for this as an opportunity to get Jesus, to catch him doing another thing, because they were upset that he had done things like healing people on the Sabbath. They were upset with some of the statements he made about um, really considering himself equal with God. And so they're wanting to catch him again. So they had been looking around, and it seems like everybody is talking about Jesus. They're, they're questioning it. Maybe they had heard about him feeding the 5,000 or the healings he did, but people are talking about him. So he goes up, and then it says in the middle of the feast, uh, so after a few days, maybe four days or so, uh, Jesus begins teaching. And they're wondering, how is this man um, able to teach when he's never studied? Like They're like, hey, where's your degree? We don't see a degree, right? Um, who did you study under? Where, where did you go to school? But Jesus answered them, and I love this. My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I love this. You know, oftentimes we, we want to know uh, if God's word is true. Read Jesus' words. Go to the gospel, read the red letters. And if you have a heart that's willing to do God's will, when you read Jesus' words, something in you will say, this is God. This is God's words. Jesus even says that. Like, look, test it. If you have a heart to do God's will, test my words. You will see in your heart that this is true. He doesn't need a degree. He, doesn't, he didn't need to go to school. He was speaking the truth of the Father. And Jesus had authority in that. Now, I, I think we could learn something from that. When people are wondering about Christianity, maybe your friends are asking you questions, I'll say, at some point, maybe even early on, take them to the words of Jesus. We can talk about science. We can talk about archaeology. We can talk about history. We can talk about the validity of the Bible. Those are all good things to talk about. But if you get them reading the words of Jesus and they have a heart that wants to know God's will, something in them will start to change. I have talked to so many people and the moments where they really truly started to believe wasn't when they were discussing it or debating it with their friend. It was when they were looking at the words of Jesus and something in them was changing. Amen. The words of Jesus have power, especially when we have an open heart to them. 
verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus is saying, I'm not operating uh, in my own way, uh, trying to get my own glory, but I'm seeking the glory of the Father who sent him, uh, who sent me. Um, and then he jumps over here, and we'll give it some context as well, but has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you seeking to kill me then? Because they're seeking to kill him because they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. One of the main things that they're accusing him of, of healing a man on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath. And they're like, you're a teacher. You can't be setting this bad example of working on the Sabbath, so we're going to kill you, is what the Jewish leaders were thinking. But Jesus calls him out. He says, Moses has given you law, and you guys break the law. The reason he's talking about that and why he's going to talk about circumcision, which is all of our favorite thing to talk about, uh, is because the... The tradition that was given um, was that each male would be circumcised on the eighth day, and you had to stick to that. And sometimes the eighth day since the child was born fell on the Sabbath, and they would still circumcise on the Sabbath, which is an act of work. And he's saying, to keep one law, you're breaking another law. You yourselves um, are being hypocritical, so why are you seeking to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. <laughs> Like, next time you disagree with somebody, you'd be like, you have a demon. <laughs> oh, man, it's like, it's a pretty harsh statement. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that he, the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus is like, I made a whole man's body well. You're doing a little snip to make one man's body well. Uh, why are you judging? Like, judge with, with correct understanding. Don't judge by appearances. So he calls them out for their own hypocrisy on that subject. Um, since they were questioning him about why he healed people on the Sabbath. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, it is not the man, um, is, is, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? <laughs> like they just said, who's trying to seek you? Now they're talking about, oh, isn't that the guy we're trying to kill? <laughs> Obviously, there's probably different voices in the crowd saying different sorts of things. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Oh, hoo -hoo. <laughs> I bet the Jewish authorities heard them say that and got real upset, real upset, because they're like, hey, if you guys aren't doing anything about the things he's saying, maybe you actually secretly think he is the Christ. They're not going to like that. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him you do not know, I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. They weren't even aware that his hour had not yet come. They didn't know what was going on, but God 
uh, sovereignly is protecting Jesus in this moment. Um, he's in control of all. Now, it's interesting. Um, they're really questioning the fact that he comes from Galilee. Um, we're going to see. But they were thinking the Messiah would just appear out of nowhere. But we know that Jesus was born um, as a child. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That's kind of a rhetorical question there. They're, they're saying, hey, like we believe it. Like how could somebody do more signs than this guy's doing right now? Like this is impressive. Like who else is walking on water, turning, uh, you know, feeding 5,000 people miraculously, turning water into wine? Who else is doing these things? How could somebody do uh, these things? Um, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The greatest game of hide and seek. Jesus will win. He's like, I'm going to hide so good, none of you will find me. Uh, but they're trying to seek him out, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm only going to be here a little bit longer, and I'm going someplace that you would never be able to find me. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. They're like, what, he's going to go out to like the Jews who have left our, our homeland and gone out to the places where the Greeks are, and he's going to teach those Greek Jews. Like, what is he going to do? Like, what is he talking about? I guess we wouldn't find him there because we're not going to go over there. Jesus is obviously talking about heaven. He's talking about the eternal dwelling place. So they're confused by that. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus they're arguing, they're talking about this epic game of hide and seek. They're talking about circumcision. They're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. They're arguing about whether or not he's the Messiah. And at a certain point, and I love this, Jesus abruptly really finishes this conversation. He, he brings it back to the whole point, which we have to do that sometimes, don't we? Because these kind of conversations can go in circles. And at a certain point, Jesus brings it back in and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let them come and I will give you a water to drink. And then John clarifies that this water, of course, is the Holy Spirit, which believers receive today. When we believe in Jesus Christ, his spirit comes and dwells in us. And out of that rivers of living, uh, rivers of living water are pouring out of us. We talked a lot about this when Jesus talked about this in chapter four at the woman at the well, um, how he gives this eternal living water for all those who come to him. So Jesus kind of interrupts this conversation that seems to be going nowhere and he gets it back to the point, if you're thirsty for something, if you're seeking the will of God, if you're seeking to know God, if you're seeking peace with God, come and drink. We got to get it back to that church. We have to always bring it back to that. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Jesus has something for you. 
if you're thirsty. It continues. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to rest with him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, Jesus did come from the line of David, and they were looking for that in the Messiah. They just didn't know that about Jesus. And Jesus had been doing a lot of ministry in um, the area of Galilee, and so they just assumed that he was, he was from that area. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? You know what's interesting? No one ever spoke like him. When I was in Nepal uh, in March, we were doing a missions trip there. We did a lot of evangelism. I got to lead this taxi cab driver of ours to the Lord. And I gave him a Bible and said, start with John 1. And he read, read it. I think he read both John 1 and chapter 2. And we met for coffee a few days later. And we sat down together. together. And uh, I loved what he said. It has stuck with me, and I think about it all the time. Um, just because it, so, it was just so pure, because he grew up Hindu, also around, he had a lot of his uh, family were, were Buddhists as well. And so he, uh, he says, you know, everyone says, read Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. He's like, read John. <laughs> He's like, you got to read John. And, you know, and we see the words of Jesus in this book. We see it, and he's like, it was like, this is what... Um, he said is that I've never read anything like it. And these men who were supposed to arrest Jesus, they hear Jesus speaking and they're like, I've never heard anyone speak like him. I didn't know what to do. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus who had gone up to him before, which we read about in chapter 3, and Jesus told him about how we're to be born again, that there's this transformation that happens when we follow Jesus. So Nicodemus had had this really unique experience with Jesus. He had learned some really um, mind-blowing things about transformation um, that was very unique from Jesus. And so he starts to maybe start to defend Jesus a little bit here. Nicodemus, who had gone up to him before, and who was one of them, we know that he was a ruler of the Jewish leaders, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Which would be an insult, it's a poor area. Um, Search and see that no one arises from Galilee. And then they each went to his own house. So we see this text where Jesus is, defending his, his identity, defending his actions against people who are accusing him, people who are trying to, to arrest him. But in the midst of all that, Jesus wants us to know that if we're thirsty, we can come to him. And those who were thirsty, they were listening. Those who were thirsty, they wanted to believe. There was something unique about Jesus, the way he spoke, the things he said, they were beautiful. I think all of us seek the presence of God. Now, you, you would say, well, yeah, we're Christians. Of course we do, right? 
Um, but I think all people are seeking the presence of God. I have a friend from a networking group I go to for, for work, and he is like a devout atheist. And I say devout because they're so devout, it's almost like religion, right? Uh, he's just a devout atheist and really, really cool guy, though. And we would, we would talk a lot at our networking meetings and so forth. And uh, he, had, he had left the networking meeting because he had a change of jobs. And he um, was at a coffee shop one day, and I saw him. And he was in the midst of, like, building some new um, properties uh, for he now was managing a bunch of uh, new retirement homes that were in development. And apparently they're having a ton of problems. Uh, nothing was going right. And uh, every contractor was, was uh, giving him a hard time and delaying and, and so forth. And he's just like, I'm just having such a hard time. And he knew that I was a pastor. And he said, uh, can you pray for me? <laughs> and I said, I thought you were an atheist. <laughs> and he said, there's no atheists in foxholes. <laughs> Which is a saying, you know, about when you're in trouble, when things are hard, I'm praying to God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought that was so cool. And he, I mean, he still, ha he still doesn't believe. He says he doesn't believe in a God. But I've ran into him a couple other times, um, funny enough. But I'm praying for him. But it's interesting, right? Even as an atheist, he's like, please pray for me. <laughs> uh, he's like, I'm praying. I'm seeking God because things are a mess right now, and I don't know what to do. All of us seek God's presence. We all seek God's help. There's something in us that seeks that. And we all ask questions like, where did, where did we come from? Is there more life than this? Like, why do I like, think the way I do? Why are... We all wonder. It's because we were created for so, so much more. And we find that in relationship with a God who can be present and active, tangible in our lives. Amen? That's what this Feast of Tabernacles is all about, is that God dwells with us. That's really good news. God dwells with us. In the, in the human form, in, in, through Christ. But we also know, and even Jesus even talks about this, this living water that comes from the Holy Spirit, that we have the Holy Spirit with us here and now. God's presence dwells in us, dwells with us, is around us, goes before us, comes behind us. He guards us on all sides. We have the presence of God with us. And I'm not just talking about his omnipresent attribute that he is at, you know, able to be at all places at once. No, I'm talking about present and active, moving, right? That love of God that you can, you can know, that you can feel, that you can be close to. God is present. Come on, that deserves an amen. He is in this room. Not just like air, which we all breathe, but as a loving father, a loving savior who is here, who wants to have relationship with you. I think we think of God's presence too much like the atmosphere or like air that we breathe. A little too much because it's much more personal than that. You're not, you know, going to oxygen to be like, oh, like help me, right? Because it's more than just his presence in a physical sense. It's his presence in an emotional, a spiritual, a mental sense. We're to have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit gives us that. But we have even more to look forward to. Let's look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. 
we doing okay? I think we're doing all right on time. I'll, I'll try not to go too long. It's a whole nother chapter, but it'll be a little faster. Okay. For we know, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed. So the tent, he's speaking about our bodies. But he's using this word tent because he's also kind of referencing the tabernacle. Like we are our own temples, uh, our own tabernacles for the presence of God. Okay. So that's the context there. We have a building. Um, from God. So he's saying, if our earthly home, our earthly bodies are destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling. It's really interesting. We always think about the homes in heaven, like the mansions in heaven, as like physical houses that our, our physical bodies will go live in. Paul's not really saying that here. He's saying that our our heavenly homes are our new bodies in heaven, our new dwelling place in heaven. And he's saying that if our earthly tents, our earthly bodies are destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made, uh, not made with hands, but eternal in heavens. And he says that we as Christians are groaning to put on this um, heavenly dwelling. And he says, if indeed by putting it on, we may be, uh, not be found naked. He's saying our spirits aren't going to just be floating around. We have a new home to go to, a new tent to dwell in, a new body in heaven. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Which is really interesting language there. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So Paul's saying we're, we should be, as Christians, looking forward and eagerly longing for the time where we're going to be apart from this dead, sinful flesh body that we reign in now, that we live in now, but we're going to go to a place where we have a perfect body, a perfect dwelling, an eternal place, a heavenly home. We should be longing for that. And he kind of clarifies, like, not really in a suicidal way where we're just like, oh, I love death, but know that we would want more life. And that's what we have to look forward to. And then he says, we have the Holy Spirit right now that seals us for this. He's the promise, the guarantee of this. That's why it's so important that we know the Holy Spirit is with us, because he is the seal and guarantee of what is to come when we will be in heaven without sin, without this body of death that brings us down, that without this fleshly desire that causes us to stumble into sin, we're going to be freed from all of that and be made whole in a new life, in a new body, in a new dwelling place in heaven for eternity. He's like, we got to be excited about that. We need to long for that. We need to groan for that. We need to look forward to that. Amen. So we are, so we are our, sorry, I can't talk today. So we are always of good courage. Amen. When you know that death isn't becoming naked and unclothed, it's not this moment of shame. It's actually a moment where we get clothed more, right? It's a moment where we receive more life. We are always of 
good courage. We know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he's saying, we all want to be away with the Lord in our true homes, but in the meantime, we should live in a way that is glorifying to him, because one day we will have to answer for our actions before Jesus. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are, uh, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not condemning ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen. He said, we have this amazing hope. We have this amazing, amazing future ahead of us. And it should cause in us some reverence and fear of God where we, we are aware of our actions and, and do things to live um, for Him. But he, then he brings it back to that gospel message that Jesus died for us. He took our sin. He rose again, making all of this possible. And he says, this is where we boast. This is where we are, um, this is our message. This is where we're going to take courage, where we're going to um, find our confidence. And I love that. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Listen to that. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, God, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love this chapter. I would encourage you to read it at home and really absorb the truth of this. We have 
a new identity in Jesus Christ. What Jesus did with his death, burial, and resurrection means that we don't have to be regarded in the flesh anymore. We don't have to be known for our identity in the flesh anymore. We have a new heavenly dwelling place, a new heavenly uh, identity, and we get to say, that is my place. That is my calling. I am a son of God, a daughter of God. I am an heir to the throne. Like these are the truths about you. Do you realize it? He says that at some points, yeah, we kind of view it all in the flesh, like Jesus died for my sins and, and so forth. But more than that, he also did all of that and raising from the dead so we could have newness of life and a new identity. And I think sometimes we get stuck just on the forgiveness part because we're so focused on our flesh. And Paul's like, I want you to forget about your flesh. I want you to forget about your old life. I want that to pass away. I want you to enter into the new as a new creation. And we spend so much time like, oh, my flesh, like I'm struggling so much. Like, you know how to stop struggling. Stop thinking about it. Focus on your new identity in Jesus and walk in it. Because Jesus has already forgiven you for everything you have done, everything you are doing, and everything you will do. When we look at each other as Christians, we should be seeing sons and daughters of God. We should be seeing new creations. We should see the best in others. We should be looking and saying, hey, like, you're not a sinner anymore. That's not your identity. And so when you mess up, that's you going back to something old. That's not you. Because we have this tendency to go, oh, they made that one mistake, so I'm going to think of them that way that all the time. Paul's like, don't regard them that way anymore. Regard them for their new identity in Christ. And you know what? That's where power is. Is there power in going, oh, you're such a sinner? You, you dirty little sinner. Why would you do that? Why, what's the matter with you? We sin because that's the nature of our flesh. But in Christ, we have a new nature. So when we speak that life into each other's lives as a community, there is power and we will see the old go away. We will see that old things pass away. Amen. I want us to be a church that speaks life into each other. Who's with me? Where we don't just beat each other up for each other's flaws, but we say, hey, because of Jesus, I see something so much better in you. I see unlimited eternal potential in you. That's powerful. When you look in the mirror, I want you to start looking at yourself that way. You are not a dirty little sinner anymore. I don't care what you did last night. That's not your identity in Jesus. Are you with me? You look in the mirror and you should see a son and daughter of the living God. Because Jesus died and rose again so that you could. Amen? God's presence is here. I want you to know that you are loved by God, so much so that it gives you a new identity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these passages, Lord. Thank you for our church's diligence to focus in on the word. Lord, there's no power in, in my words. The power comes from your word. It is your word coming alive in this moment. If they're feeling anything, it's not because of me. It is because your Holy Spirit is here right now. Lord, and your Holy Spirit will be here while we, we partake of communion. Your Holy Spirit will be with us as we pray. Your Holy Spirit will be with us as we go out into this week, as we face challenges once again. Lord, your presence is with us. Your Holy Spirit is working in us. Lord, I pray that we would be listening to the fact that you are telling us that we are something new. 
that we have authority that is given to us by Jesus to step out into this life and live a victorious life, to live a life that has impact and power. God, you are so good. Thank you so much for each one of these people that you love so, so, so much that you gave your life for them. And you rose again so they can have new identity and indeed already do if they believe in you.